This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki in New Plymouth, thanks to New Zealand On Air. For more local content, search for accessradiotaranaki.com. Morning, New Zealand. The weather is much better than a couple of weeks back, but we still need to be aware of weather conditions around New Zealand. So welcome to another edition of Neville Rides Boundaries, coming to you from Access Radio Taranaki, Coast Access Radio, Radio Hawke's Bay, Arrow Radio Masterton, and I'm Neville Wallace, broadcasting from Hara. In my lineup today, I have Nicole McKee, spokeswoman for ACT on Firearms Control, followed by Barbara Kurger and weatherman Philip Duncan from weatherwatch.co.nz. Right, first up is Nicole McKee. Nicole is a woman who knows a side-by-side or over-and-under shotgun from a bolt-action, pump-action and lever-action rifle. This is quite a lengthy interview as Nicole explains why she objects to the mum-and-dad hunter that puts meat on the family dinner table being treated like criminal by police with the proposed new Firearms Act. So sit back and listen to Nicole and I take you through this. Well, this morning we're joined by Nicole McKay, Act Party Spokeswoman on Firearms Control. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, Neville. It's great to be with you and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Nicole, is this government the criminal's best friend when it comes to firearms law? Because when I read... The many cases piece, police are proposing to raise fees from a few hundred dollars to over a thousand and apply fees to activities that have had no charges previously, like uh, taking an antique rifle firearm out of your home for a display somewhere. Yeah, you know, there's a, a couple of interesting aspects to the question you asked, and uh, the first one addressing the criminal side of it. What really concerns me is the government, with their legislative changes, will actually create more criminals. And these will be unintended criminals from the regime that they're trying to implement. And, you know, part of it is being unable to afford to own a firearm, which is the fees consultation that is occurring at the moment. And what that is, of course, uh, some may know but some may not, Neville, is the police are looking to increase fees. And as you said, increase fees for activities where there previously were no fees. And you've got to ask why. Because the legislation that came through both in 2019 and in 2020 talked about promoting public safety. Now, if you're going to promote public safety, then you should ensure that those that are in possession of what it is that you want to keep safe are actually able to afford to be able to be part of that regime. And the proposals with the fees regime that uh, they're wanting to introduce will actually not keep the community safe and will have that backwards deterrence. And then, of course, it will create criminals. So I think what we have to look at from what the government's trying to achieve is where is the safety aspect and what they're doing. Now, you had just mentioned yourself about taking a, a firearm out to an event, to a show. So here's an example. You used to be able to, if you had a restricted weapon or had a, an endorsed firearm, which is already registered, by the way, all of those categories, if you want to, say, do a reenactment for Armistice Day, and those are always quite popular. It teaches New Zealand 
history as well. And if you want to do that, you have a rare firearm. You now have to apply to New Zealand Police to be able to take that firearm from your home to that event. And some might say, well, that's okay. But the fee is looking at being or costing around $1,000 to be able to go and teach history to New Zealand. And I just think that's absolutely ludicrous, especially when you might have 30 reenactors wanting to go to that event. That's $30,000 that the government would, would get from this one event. For what? What safety improvement is there? There never actually was a problem that needed action. So, so what is this $30,000 fee that could be instigated? But that's only one aspect of the fees regime. Another aspect that they brought in was that if a licensed firearms owner who's been approved, fit and proper by police or approved, they've had their security checked and that also approved, if they are an endorsement holder, say a pistol shooter, or one of those other people that are highly regulated and already have their firearms registered with police, if they're burgled and the police need to come back, they're going, the police are going to charge the firearms owner for coming back. So we're having victims that are being charged for the police service. Uh, and it just, all of this, all of this will end up meaning we're going to have people that are not licensed they're not going to have their firearms in security because they, they don't trust the police regime. And effectively and ultimately, we're going to have less licensed firearm owners under the watch or the guise of police and more criminal activity occurring. And that is really, really scary, especially when the ultimate outline of the legislative changes was to keep the community safe. We're actually going in the opposite direction, Neville. Yeah, Chris, well, we did a bit of study over this one too, Nicole, and I found out that in Auckland alone last year there was 368 gun offences, and gun offences involving gangs exceeded 1,000 in the last year alone, so is that keeping anyone safe? No, it's not, and one of the things that really annoys me, and I mentioned this to the Commissioner of Police in December last year at Select Committee, is the constant rhetoric that the reason why gangs have guns is because they come from licensed firearm owners. And it was pointed out by New Zealand Customs in 2014 when they checked 2 to 5% of containers that came into the country, they found 5,887 firearms within those containers. It's not just licensed firearm owners. We've got bad apples within our group, Ooh. and you could expect that. You can expect that with 250,000. But what's coming in through the borders with the drugs is being unchecked, and once again, licensed firearm owners are being targeted as the reason for that illegal acquisition by criminals. See, the other one that's bugging me, and I'll raise it with you as well, that the police data revealed that they reckon that Christchurch terrorist attack identified that the present regulatory system was underfunded and underfinanced, but reading more about the mosque shooter, the question is, were the police up to their job granting this terrorist a firearms, firearms licence, surely? And, and this is also an interesting aspect of the changes that we've seen. Rushed legislation in 2019 and 2020 making these really big, robust changes 
when in actual fact it was the administration of the firearms regime that was at fault when it came to the 2019 mosque terrorist attack. But we were not told that until the Royal Commission Inquiry report came out, which was, of course, well after the legislative changes. So we at ACT are saying we actually need to remove police from administration and regulatory impact on firearms because they're not doing it well. They're not doing it properly. They've failed and instead of actually owning up and saying we were at fault and we need to make changes in our regime and the way that we work, they're saying it's actually all of you guys out there, you 250,000 licensed firearm owners, you're no better than gang members. We're going to treat you that way because we no longer trust you as being fit and proper, even though we did ascertain that you were. So it's it's rather, you know, just taking the aspect of law and punishing people instead of saying, this regime didn't work. We did it fail. How can we improve it? And they could have saved the country hundreds of millions of dollars in doing that instead of just trying to target the licensed firearm owners once again. Yeah, I might need a bit of uh, information more from you, uh, Nicole, about what I got next is Will they be able to reduce the number of deer and goats because they'll be invading current farmland and the ever-increasing area of pine tree forestry? Yeah, this is very interesting, and we're hearing, especially in the North Island, of people not being able to access Department of Conservation site for hunting because they have to traverse through forestry land in order to get to some of these areas. They, The forestry companies are saying, we don't actually want you to come through our land because Work Health and Safety has said to us that if anything happens to a person who's on our land, which is a business site, the forestry site, uh, then we're going to be culpable for potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines to the government. So what we're going to do is put up fences and we're going to stop people from coming through. So what's eventually happening, and this is happening around the country because the access scenarios uh, are different all over New Zealand, but we don't have the pest controllers out there anymore being able to help. And what I mean by this, Neville, is, you know, your cocky down in the South Island used to ring up his mates and say, I've got wallabies all over my, my farm. Can you come in over the weekend? I'll move the stock. Can you come in and take them out? Well, that can't happen anymore. Because you can't just have people come on to your business site, and a farm is a business site, to undertake pest control. You have to have professionals to come and do it. And now those professionals have to be licensed by New Zealand Police, and there was a big delay in getting that licensing structure underway. So what happens? We have massive breeding seasons over a couple of years. Deer are huge in some places. I've heard of deer in Wellington here and coming into the back properties in Wainua, Mata, Lower Hutt. We've got a wild pig in Brooklyn in Wellington starting to dig up people's back gardens. I mean, this is just getting really out of control. We've got wallabies up in the uh, in the Bay of Plenty, up by the Kaimais as well, and we've got no one able to effectively get in there and be able to dispatch, humanely dispatch those animals. And it's all because of bureaucracy. It's all because of that nonsense. Instead of trusting the people to be fit and proper, we've put so much red tape and regulation around access, around ownership, around your ability to just go out and hunt and gather that we've ended up with a boost 
than animals uh, within the within the whole country around certain regions. It's really, really bad. And we've got less people able to get access or even be able to go out and humanely dispatch those pests and fill their freezers at the same time. Quite agree. Now, the other thing I'd chuck in here, Nicole, is what's the alternative for shooting pests? Because if you talk 1080, and I've spoken to one or two, have said, for heaven's sake, don't mention that around here. You're likely to get your wheel nuts on the car loosened. Yeah, look, 1080, the Act policy around 1080 is that there is a use for 1080 in areas where the hunters can't get to. So if you're looking... If you're looking at high country areas, then we agree that 1080 should be dropped there. But the, the actual fact is we are in a cost of living crisis. With everything that's happened in our country this year, we've had two cyclones, we've had an earthquake that, while thankfully delivered no damage, when you have rain and earth movement, there could be potential landslips a little bit further down the track in the months to come with winter. We've got all of this happening. We've got increase in mortgage prices, uh, you know, just even being able to buy fruit and veggies, even eggs, is getting really hard. Why can't we allow people to be able to just go out there and hunt, to be able to go out there and harvest without putting all of these restrictions on them? And I got so carried away then, Neville, I actually forgot what your question was. (laughs) (laughs) I just get really passionate about the ability for people to do what they think is right, what they know is right, and what is legal, and they're being restricted in it. Well, look, I'll just move on to the next one. I sort of don't want to have the whole program. I'd love to, but I'd better have a bit of variation. Nicole, are there any figures of money collected with the increased fees? And would there be any money saved by keeping the current system and letting registered firearm owners keep our wild animals under control? I think with the fees regime, we do need to have an increase. We haven't had an increase since the 1990s, and the reality is a 10-year licence is costing 126.50. If it doubled and went to 250, people could understand that and uh, would probably go along with it. Um, but when you start putting these fees restricting people to be able to um, have or legally own a firearm in order to hunt... What concerns me, Neville, is that they're still going to own the firearm and they're still going to hunt because that necessity for being able to to feed your family is there. And so what concerns me is that these people who have licence Um, who are licensed owners and have security, will take their firearms from their police-approved secure facilities and put them under their bed or put them out in the garage because they are no longer licensed because they couldn't afford to do so or be that way. This means we're going to get an impact of more animals, uh, more wild pigs, more more deer, uh, and those that that are out there trying to hunt are doing it illegally. And if they get caught, they're going to get smashed. They're going to get more consequence to them than what a gang member would get being caught with a firearm. (laughs) Well, in summary, Nicole, I'll leave it to you. How could we develop or how would you develop a better system for firearms firearms control and keep everybody happy? I think it's going to be hard to keep everybody happy, but what I have been working on, Neville, since I came into Parliament is a whole new arms act, starting from scratch, not an amendment bill. We need to start again. 
1983 Act was always known as the best firearms act in the world. It did work. We have stats to show how well it did work. What we have now doesn't, and it's become a bit like the RMA, where it started yeah. off as something simple and turned into, you know, a thousand pages. This is what's happening with the Arms Act, and it's actually conducive to making a less safe country. So we're going to start again and take the best bits of the 1983 Act, the best bits of some of the changes, and get rid of those things that don't need to be there, those things that impede on people being able to live their normal lives. But we have to keep the safety focus there. So I would like to look and make sure we focus on the fit and proper person, not on the firearm. Registration, full registration, does not work. It's been proven all over the world to cost too much money with no effect for safety. We need to look at the person who owns the firearm and make sure that they are fit and proper. So I think a whole new regime is needed and act working on that and hope to have it ready, developed, consultated on and ready before the election October 2023. Well, thank you, Nicole McKee, ACT Party spokeswoman on firearms control. That was very interesting and revealing. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks for having me, Neville. You're listening to Neville Rides the Boundaries, coming to you from Access Radio Taranaki and on Neville Wallace. Now Barbara Kuriger joins me to explain what she has learned from her trek around Opanaki. The old dairy factory used to be a flax processing factory managed by Lord Rutherford's father before the demand for flax products dropped off. Well, good morning, Barbara Kuriger. What a week it's been again. Oh, yeah, good morning, Neville, and uh, it is a good morning where I'm sitting. Um, I'm actually sitting in Blenheim at the moment. Uh, we've just had uh, the Blue-Greens conference uh, yesterday, and I've got some associated activities with it today. But, um, look, honestly, I just can't believe um, what we're seeing with some of these um, people in various parts of New Zealand just getting hit over and over again it's um it's a it's almost like a Christchurch earthquake scenario where they had the main event and then the aftershocks kept coming and coming and coming and um you know pretty much up the the Hawke's Bay uh, up in Gisborne uh, up in Auckland and actually to some extent the Wairarapa and the Wairarapa is almost uh, the forgotten sort of you know everyone's talking about Hawke's Bay and Gisborne but there's a fair bit of damage actually down on um, on the Wairarapa coast as well so um, yeah look it's really gruelling for those people uh, for those who have lost everything but for those who haven't every time we get a, another dump of rain there's always the evacuations of what's going to happen next and what's still unstable um, it's really been um, interesting uh, as I've uh, progressed out to do a couple of walks lately because obviously, you know, just checking out some of the things in conservation, but conservation seems to go with history. And um, did a couple of really interesting walks um, last week and learned things about our own province and our own hometown that um, actually you don't normally uh, know unless you sort of get out and about. And um, we went down to, we did the uh, walk around uh, Openaki and did, um, you know, there's a, a ring walk of Openaki and uh, it goes around the lake and it goes past various areas, but it goes past the old dairy factory. And, of course, there's lots of old dairy factories in um, Taranaki and that one's uh, in a bit of a mess state, I must say. But actually looking at some of the old, um, the dam's still there where they, you know, had it for the factory. And it used to be, before it was a factory, a milk factory, it used to be a flax 
factory. Um, and then the flax, uh, you know, just like life today, the flax, the, um, you know, the market went out for flax and things wasn't quite, you know, weren't quite happening. So the flax industry went down and the milk industry came up and, you know, we still face, face those dilemmas with different industries today. But the interesting thing was that Ernest Rutherford, who split the atom, uh, used to live uh, in the district, and his father was the person running the flax processing. Uh, and so Ernest Rutherford, uh, the atom splitter, spent some time helping his father with flax um, in, in little old Opanaki. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing, and the other thing was, we went up, uh, went up the mountain uh, the following day, and we went up York Road. Uh, went up to have a look, uh, said there was a, his, a historic site up there, um, and we went around a track, and it was around an old quarry, and it was actually in the reserve. So under resource management, there's no way that anyone would be allowed to do it today, but it was in the early half of the last century. Um, there was a massive quarry up there. You can still see the foundations of the working man's quarters. You can see where the crush was, um, and there was an old railway line up there, and um, they actually, because they've got the, 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 the river up there, and, you know, obviously you need water and things when you're, when you're quarrying, um, and the horses used to pull some of these carts down the railway lines, and that's what they used to build Port Taranaki. So, it's, you know, while we think about getting out in nature, and, yes, we saw some kero and we saw some, you know, really good... Um, signs of nature when we were currently up in the reserve, um, you know, my thoughts, were, my mind was ticking over, you know, thinking once upon a time, um, some of the things we did, I mean, you know, you'd look twice now and, and none of us would probably even consider actually thinking about, I mean, we need quarries, we absolutely need quarries, but no one would think about doing them up in the reserve of Mount Taranaki because it just wouldn't be a thing these days. But, you know, and of course... Um, as needs must, the people that went before us did what they need to build what they had. Uh, and, you know, climate change wasn't a thing that they actually ever thought about or, um, you know, the biodiversity. Um, and But it's quite uh, fascinating how much biodiversity is back in that place where that quarry had been. But it's like, you know, we're talking about, um, well, close to 80 years later, uh, was pretty much shut down in World War Two because it ran after World War Two because they ran out of money. So um, yeah, interesting, interesting thing. So I'm um, pretty excited about this portfolio, not just because of the biodiversity, but it's teaching me a lot about uh, the history of New Zealand. So um, it's sort of been my week, Neville. Well, it's a very interesting week. Thank you, Barbara. Philip Duncan joins us to explain the vagaries of the inclement weather that we're experiencing at the moment. Well, it's that time of the week when we catch up with Philip Duncan from weatherwatch.co.nz. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, Neville. How are you? I'm fine. Now, Shona said, seeing where we've been part of this morning, can she order a fine day? Well, I think we can do that, but you've got to get through that rain first. So we're, well, when we recorded this interview, it was, you know, rain was actually setting in around parts of the country and um, places like Harwada, we were expecting about uh, 35 millimetres or so coming through. Yep. But the good news is by the time this goes to air, we should be in a drier spell. And at this stage, it is looking mostly dry for, for a chunk of the, the, the new week. Um, but the 
tropics are very active now. And so we're watching the tropics very closely. There's a lot of uh, low pressure up there. And uh, at this stage, we're not seeing a tropical cyclone. But the computer models did see one the other day, and then it disappeared again. So with computer modeling, we sort of look for three kind of runs in a row, which is sort of every 12 hours. If you have that happen three times in a row and it shows the same thing, that's usually when we start to get a bit more interested. Um, so that hasn't happened yet, or at least not when we were recording this. So <laughs> the tropics got a lot of energy. Even if the cyclone does form up there again, um, we have to remember it is the peak of the cyclone season, so that's normal. Um, and then the track to New Zealand is not as easy as people might think. And so it's a bit like playing pinball. And uh, you don't always win. <laughs> so with pinball, the ball sometimes hits and sometimes it bounces off. And so we're going to watch any, any lows up there and see what they do. But for now, uh, the threat to New Zealand is not as big. But we're still seeing this unsettled weather pattern bringing high pressure, low pressure, and these um, autumn changes where we're feeling the temperature dropping a little bit. At least once a week now, we'll probably notice that. Yeah, Philip, I just noticed from your YouTube presentation, you and are we taking more account of what weather's happening in Australia and up in that neck of the woods in the tropics? Yeah, I mean, Australia's had um, a fairly quiet summer. Uh, they they started off very wet. You know, Sydney was, was having rain after rain event, uh, and we had Victoria flooding, and we had uh, you know, record-breaking floods around the Murray River over spring last year. But their, their summer's gone very quiet for the most part. Um, they're having a lot of rain up in the tropics, which is very normal for, for summer, but also La Nina summer. And there's a bit of rain that keeps spreading down into Western Australia, We've not just had a heat wave where it's been 40 to 45 degrees almost every day inland and places like Adelaide being up into the sort of late 30s mm. um, and they've had a cooler change this week. So Australia's actually had pretty good weather and they haven't really had as many storms as we've been having in New Zealand. So our small country has dominated the sort of the severe weather really and so far Australia's been, been fairly lucky. So, well, when we look at it globally and we're on Ireland and the South Pacific, are those uh, roaring 40s not so roaring so much nowadays? Not at the moment they're not, no. Um, but the high pressure systems are, are sort of quite a long way south this summer. That's why you're seeing the South Island have you know, some very dry weather lately. But uh, they've had a bit of rain, which is good. But Southland and Otago and South Canterbury, those areas have been quite dry. And the Upper West Coast as well, the Westport and Greymouth, those areas. So normally when the west, the uh, westerly winds are blowing, uh, those areas get a bit more in the way of changeable weather. Yeah. Uh, and certainly a lot of rain for, for the West Coast. So we haven't quite got there yet. But usually around March and April, uh, you'll start to see that coming back to life a little bit more often. And the high pressure usually moves more northwards. Um, which, which sort of brings a bit, bit of an extended summer to the North Island. Not sure if that will happen this year or not, but that's quite often what happens. Now, given that the nights are very humid, what effect has that got on farming, uh, Philip? Because I think that that would be good weather for facial eczema and God knows what else that thrives under these conditions. Yeah, the, um, obviously insects are a problem, but um, yeah, facial eczema becomes an issue, especially if you've had a dry summer and the grass has been dead or dying 
and then it rains and then we get the humidity. That's the perfect recipe for the uh, for the for the facial eczema um, and the, you know, the spore count just jumps in the grass. So you need a bit of dead grass in the mix yeah. for that to happen. If it's been really wet and the grass is lush and green um, and the humidity comes in afterwards, usually not so much of an issue there. So it needs that rotting grass to help or the brown dead grass. And there are parts of the North Island that have got that at the moment from, from summer, although it's a little bit hard to find those areas um, because there has been just so much rain that's fallen around so many regions, the ground is saturated. So um, it, it may not be an issue too much at the moment, but it could still be a real problem going into March. Usually that's when it peaks, is about March and maybe early April, and then it tends to drop off once the, once the temperatures drop down. Oh, well done. Thank you, Philip Duncan. We'll catch up with you next week to see what the weather's like. Thank you, Neville. Well, that's it, folks, for another week. Remember the fossil fuel extravaganza on the 4th, 5th of March at 172 Turatura Road. And I'll be back next week with more interesting news. Kakiti Ano. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com.